15 from verse 35 to the end. 1 Corinthians 15. This is the word of the Lord. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a, bo- is, God gives it a body, and he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendour of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendour of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendour, the moon another, and the stars another. And the star differs from star to other stars in splendour. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonour and it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness and it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, and the second man from heaven. As was with the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immorality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the glory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Just one uh, comment on the uh, euthanasia debate this week. If you go to the ACL website, there's a great 
a video from... Does anyone watch Silent Witness? I know I like to talk about British police drama, but does anyone watch Silent Witness? I don't actually. A few, yeah. But there's a lady in that who, who has a disability, actually. It's an actor who has a disability, and she's recorded a video uh, talking about euthanasia. They had a debate about euthanasia a few years ago in the UK, uh, and she, t- she just talked from a personal perspective about uh, the threat that that kind of legislation can bring to somebody who has uh, a disability. It's really worthwhile, and I think it's worthwhile sharing with people that you might know as well who have a different perspective. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you uh, that you have not left yourself without witness, but that you have spoken to us in the Bible and in Jesus Christ And Lord, we pray uh, now that as we reflect on your word and on your world, that you would speak to our hearts through your Holy Spirit uh, as we hear your word, uh, as we think about the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to know and to be sure about what happens after this life and help us to know and to be sure about what will happen to us individually uh, after this life as well. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, over the, uh, the last three Sundays, we've been thinking about what happens after this life. We've looked at the question of if we can know whether uh, something happens after this life or not. Uh, I tried to show in the first week that we can know because there's good evidence for the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and that because Jesus rose from the dead, he can speak about what happens after death in a way that no one else can. Uh, he's the only one who's, who's died and who has come back uh, and he can speak to us about that with certainty in a way that no one else can. Uh, then we looked at the idea that nothing happens after this life. Uh, I tried to show that that view robs life of meaning, uh, that it leaves us with a thin view of the world, uh, but the Bible in contrast gives us a thick view of the world, a richer, multifaceted view of the world. Uh, which explains the world that we live in and the experiences that we have. Last week we looked at the idea that heaven happens but not hell, the idea that everyone uh, goes to heaven when they die. Uh, And I tried to show that a future without hell is a future without justice for the deep pain that many people have suffered. A future without judgment for evil is not a paradise but just another hell. Uh, And the only way that any of us can escape the condemnation that we deserve uh, for the way that we've treated God and others and God's world is by linking up with Jesus who has suffered the condemnation that we deserve on the cross. Uh, If you want to follow up on any of those talks, uh, you can. You can find them on the website uh, and I'd encourage you to check them out because if Jesus is right about what happens after this life, then being prepared for that matters. Uh, It matters about being prepared for this life and we just can't hope for the best. We need to be prepared. But this is the uh, last instalment then in this series about what happens after this life. And today we're looking at the uh, third most popular view, uh, which we got back in our survey when we asked people what they thought, uh, and that was reincarnation. Uh, That's the view that life just goes on and on in different forms uh, and in different ways. We die, but we come back uh, as something else. So what we'll do uh, this morning then is uh, to think a little bit more deeply about reincarnation. 
to dive into it a bit and then to think a little bit more about the passage that we read from the Bible. Now, I might be wrong in this and I'm, I'm happy to be uh, corrected, but my suspicion is that most people who, who hold to reincarnation haven't thought about it super, in, a, in a super deep way. Uh, but most people who hold to reincarnation are kind of familiar with the basic idea, you know, that we die and then we come back. Uh, but then uh, they've not really kind of gone, pushed any further than that. The idea of coming back is, uh, is, is an attractive idea, uh, and, and so then they hold to that as their basic view of the world. Now, if that's true, then it's helpful, I think, just to spend a little bit of time thinking about reincarnation and, and what people actually understand that to mean uh, and what they understand uh, it to, to hold. So reincarnation exists uh, in a religious form and also in kind of a secular, popular form as well, and we'll think about the religious form and then uh, the secular, westernised version as well. So reincarnation exists in a number of religions, uh, we can't look at them all, obviously, in detail, but let me give you a quick rundown of reincarnation in Hinduism and Buddhism. So in Hinduism, there are four key ideas. Uh, the first is oneness. We're all part of the divine oneness, Brahman, which stands behind reality. Uh, the you which you are is just an emanation of that divine oneness. Uh, second, you and I, according to Hinduism, are trapped in this world and in this body. And more than that, we're trapped in an endless cycle of existence in this physical world. So popularly, the idea of reincarnation sounds quite attractive. I was an Egyptian princess in a past life, and I'm looking forward to coming back as a gazelle springing across uh, the plains of Africa. Uh, you know, that might be your idea uh, of what you hope to do. But in Hinduism, coming back is not a good thing. So in Hinduism, physical existence is a curse. Third, the cause of entrapment is karma. So according to Hinduism, the actions of your life attach themselves to your soul and determine your next existence. Basically, whatever you do determines, what you do in your life determines your next reincarnation. So bad leads to bad, good leads to good, but the key point is that karma binds people to this endless wheel of life, this endless circle of, of life, this cycle of life, suffering, death, life, suffering, death, on and on forever. Fourth, then, the ultimate goal of Hinduism is to escape that cycle of physical existence and merge back into that divine oneness. The aim is not to keep coming back and to keep having another go at life. Rather, the aim of life is to make this life the last life. When we escape this life, according to Hinduism, we don't go to a kind of heaven where uh, people consciously live and enjoy each other and God. In fact, in many ways, individuality is part of the illusion and deceit of physical existence. The ultimate goal is to be merged back into the divine oneness, which is kind of an eternal consciousness uh, in which we all share. So that's Hinduism. That's Hinduism's idea of, uh, of reincarnation. Uh, now, in Buddhism, somewhat confusingly, there is no idea of reincarnation per se. Uh, 
That is, there's no idea of reincarnation in the sense of a new existence or another existence after this present one. That's because in Buddhism you don't actually exist. Uh, existence is, is an illusion. Uh, in fact, one of the goals of Buddhism is coming to appreciate the fact that there is no you. Uh, there is no soul behind you, uh, behind the physical you like there is in Hinduism. The only thing which exists is the events of life, kind of a long chain of cause and effect. For that reason, Buddhism doesn't talk about reincarnation but rebirth. Rebirth is not an eternal soul getting a new body but, if you like, the final thoughts, perceptions of this life causing the first thoughts, perceptions uh, of the next life. Existence is just this long chain of cause and effect. Moreover, in Buddhism, uh, karma is not caught up with good or bad actions, but with desires. So the thing that you have to kind of root out is desire, uh, whether good or bad. The aim is to abandon desire, uh, whether the desire for pleasure or the desire for existence or the the desire for non-existence. Desire is what traps people uh, in this world of suffering. But although Hinduism uh, and Buddhism have quite different ideas about reincarnation, there's actually quite a lot, well, there's a number of things at least that kind of unite them, I suppose. First, they're united by the idea that the key aim is not to come back. Physical existence is a kind of entrapment. The world is a world of suffering. The aim is not to get another life on this earth, rather the aim is to escape the endless cycle of rebirth or reincarnation and hence the endless cycle of suffering. Whether that's by leaving physical existence and being absorbed into that ultimate oneness uh, or whether it's by eradicating desire and ending that uh, long chain of cause and effect. So they're united by that aim that... The idea is not to come back, the aim not to come back. Secondly, united by the idea that what you do affects what the shape of your future life is or what your future is. How they get there is different, but uh, in Hinduism, the key, the key thing is good or bad actions that fit your caste. Uh, in, in Buddhism, the key thing is kind of eradicating desire. Uh, but in both, what you do matters. And if you don't live the right kind of life, then... Uh, if you don't measure up, then you're cursed to keep coming back and to keep suffering. So there's two of the main religious views of reincarnation uh, or rebirth. But I think it would be fair to say, as I said before, that uh, most people who hold to reincarnation probably don't hold to the religious kind of form of it. They hold to a, a kind of the general concept, uh, if you like. They don't hold it because they're convinced of Hinduism or Buddhism, they're just convinced or that they they like the idea of another go, another chance. Uh, And more than that, I suspect most people aren't holding to reincarnation because they're trying to escape the suffering of the world. That is, while Hinduism and Buddhism are fundamentally pessimistic about the world, popular reincarnation is optimistic about the world. You see, in Hinduism and Buddhism... Uh, life is bad uh, and it's a curse to keep coming back and we want to escape that. But in Western thought, in Western uh, kind of mystical reincarnation, life is good and we want to have as many goes at it as we can. The hope is that life keeps going in, uh, in some sense 
Life is not a curse, but a new opportunity. So there's a really quick rundown of some of the key views of reincarnation. And what I want to do now is to then just dive into them a bit more deeply and think about some of the problems that those views have. So in the first place, I think, reincarnation makes life meaningless. Reincarnation makes life meaningless. In uh, the religious form of reincarnation, life is to be escaped. Uh, It's a painful ordeal that radically devalues everything that we experience now. It devalues the relationships that we form. It devalues the things that we achieve. They're really just sufferings along the way, obstacles to the ultimate goal, which is essentially the loss of ourselves, either the loss of our individuality through absorption into this divine oneness or the realisation that our self is just an illusion in the first place. Our lives are just expendable uh, kind of opportunities to to become reabsorbed uh, or to become, uh, to realise that we're nothing more than an illusion. Moreover, in both the religious and the popular views of reincarnation, the you who you are now has no really meaningful kind of continuity with the you who you were or the you who you will be. The you who you are will ultimately dissolve into nothing and be reformed into something entirely different. What continues is a kind of nondescript blank canvas rather than the you who you are. Uh, Some people popularly say that deja vu is maybe the kind of brief recollection or echo of a past life, or perhaps they try and recover, deliberately recover, recollections from past lives. But even if those things are true, even if they were true, they're so uncommon, they're so, uh, what's remembered is so slight um, and so insubstantial and so occasional as to be effectively meaningless. There's not really any meaningful connection between your present life and your past life, or indeed your present life and the hundreds or potentially thousands of past lives that you've lived. There's no recollection of them, there's no continuity or meaningful uh, connection. It's not as though your Egyptian princess past has given you skills for making it in high society. Uh, Or it's not as though the skill that you've learned in navigating through uh, tricky, you know, one-way streets in Launceston will equip you for navigating through the plains of Africa when you come back as a gazelle. There's no sense in which the skills or or attributes which we gain, the things that we achieve in this life, pass on into into our next life. All our learning, all our achievements, all our experiences, the children that we raise, the jobs that we have, the cure for cancer that you might discover, all that makes you, you, all of that just is wiped away. The you who comes back is not connected in any significant way with the you who died. Every time you start with a blank slate, a blank slate except for, that is, all the inadequacies, errors and mistakes of your past life which continue to haunt you into the future. Reincarnation makes life meaningless. Second, reincarnation devalues the lives of others. 
That's particularly true in the religious form of uh, reincarnation where how you come back is bound up with what you've done. Uh, you can't help people in that scheme. You can't help people who are in distress because they deserve to be where they are. By helping people who are lower than you, you're interrupting the punishment uh, of their karma. So in the, in the late 90s, the manager of the English football team uh, after he, uh, was sacked after he made these comments. You and I have been physically given two hands and two legs and half-decent brains. Some people have not been born like that for a reason. The karma is working from another lifetime. I have nothing to hide about that. It's not only people with disabilities. What you sow, you have to reap. What he was saying was that people who have disabilities have no one to blame but themselves and that that's just the outworking of their karma. And I think the outrage at those statements was right, wasn't it? Reincarnation devalues the lives of other people. Third, it doesn't really provide any significant hope. So here's the experience of one person. Uh, Her husband died, uh, and at first she was comforted by the idea that his life would go on. It's an encouraging idea, isn't it? Uh, Someone that you love dies, and, and the thought is their life will go on. Until it slowly dawned on her that even if he did continue to exist, she would never know him. She would never recognise him. He would never recognise her. His memory of their shared life would be completely obliterated. He would be a completely different person. There was no hope of their being reunited or of them enjoying again what they had shared together in this life. That was all wiped away. Reincarnation makes... Offers no significant hope. Now it needs to be pointed out, I think, that none of those things make reincarnation untrue. Uh, Reincarnation could be true and just intensely dissatisfying. Uh, But as I said before, we looked a few weeks ago at some of the reasons why we can believe the Bible's account uh, about what happens after this life, why we can believe that that's a reliable account. But I think what these problems with reincarnation do as well is that they highlight, again, like the view that nothing happens after this life, they highlight that it's a thin hope and a thin view of the world. That is, it's dissatisfying, it's sort of flimsy, it doesn't hold up the the structure of our lives that we know and experience. It doesn't allow us to construct a robust view of the world. Uh, Mathematicians often find that true answers that true theorems are elegant and beautiful and somehow oddly satisfying. It's strange enough that mathematics uh, can reliably describe our world and and be used to to invent things and discover things and so on. It's even more surprising that that mathematics that's true and right uh, and powerful in describing our world is elegant uh, and, 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 and beautiful. It, do, it doesn't make sense. But, but it's over and over again, the answers of, uh, that mathematicians find are elegant and rich and multifaceted and satisfying. And it's the same, I think, with the Bible's answers to the questions of life. 
they're not just they're not just answers they're actually answers which are oddly satisfying answers which are rich and multifaceted answers which describe the reality in which we live answers which resonate with our experiences the completeness and the richness of the Bible has, if you like, the ring of truth about it because it satisfies our deepest needs and because it describes so well the world in which we live uh, and in which we find ourselves. So let me show you then, or attempt to show you, how the Bible's answer is quite different to reincarnation, how it's more satisfying uh, and, and diverse. Uh, let's do that by looking at that passage then from 1 Corinthians 15, the passage comes from one of the early church's leaders, uh, a leader and teacher by the name of the Apostle Paul. Uh, and although Paul isn't directly addressing reincarnation here, what he has to say about the Christian hope addresses some of the key contentions of reincarnation, some of the key ideas. So there are at least uh, four ways in which the hope for life after death presented here is more compelling, I think, more satisfying than that held out by reincarnation. First, the hope of the Bible is not an endless cycle of misery, but a whole new beginning. It's not an endless cycle of misery, but a whole new beginning. The prospect of reincarnation is this endless cycle, a continual rebirth into this world of suffering, misery, evil and death. But the hope that the Bible holds out is a decisive new reality, victory over death, victory over suffering. Paul says in verse 51, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. The hope is to be immortal. The hope is to be imperishable. The hope is that death will be swallowed up. In victory. The hope held out here is not continued iterations through this life, but a new hope. One day Jesus will return and the dead in Christ will rise. And they won't be raised as the same old people that they were. They'll be raised imperishable. They'll be raised immortal, never to die again. Never to suffer again. Death will be swallowed up. Death will no longer have any power. Why is that? Because Jesus has defeated death. Jesus, the Son of God, became like us. He died on a cross, died as we died, but then he rose again from the dead to show that he had conquered death. Death will no longer have any power. Is what you really want, here's the question I think, is what you really want just to keep coming back? To keep coming back and to keep suffering? to keep coming back and to keep grieving and standing at the side, to keep standing at the side of hospital beds or to keep standing at the side of graves or to keep facing the uncertainty of a, of a cancer diagnosis, to keep facing being sacked, you know, losing your job and not being able to support your family, to keep facing losing your home, to keep facing having to move away from loved ones, I don't want that. Does, does anyone actually really want that? An endless cycle of the misery of this life? 
I want a world like this one, but fixed. A world like this one, but without pain. A world like this one, but without suffering, without misery, without evil, without death. The hope of the Bible is not an endless cycle of misery, but a whole new beginning. Which leads then to the second point, which is that the Bible's hope is not the elimination of this world, but this world and us in it fixed. The people that Paul was writing to were dubious about the idea of physical resurrection. They believed instead... Uh, instead, that the, instead of there being a resurrection of a physical body, they believed that the hope was just for our souls to exist in some kind of eternal state, uh, in some kind of ethereal state. The Apostle Paul's initial question is, with what kind of body are the dead raised? He's anticipating their objection. They're saying to Paul, honestly, Paul, if the dead are raised, then tell me what kind of body are they going to have? And Paul basically answers whatever kind of body God wants to give them. God can give to anything in creation whatever kind of body he determines. People are different from animals, animals from birds, birds from fish. So too different aspects of, creations have, uh, of creation have different kinds of, uh, of glory. The sun's brighter than the moon uh, and the stars shine differently to both the sun and the uh, and the moon. God's creativity is diverse and profound. So what kind of body will it be? Paul says it will be like this one, but better. Verse 42, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Spiritual not in the sense of wispy and ethereal, but in the sense of being directed by the Spirit of God in living and loving God. That is, we'll be raised as people who are not only immortal, but who love God and serve God with our whole being. The Bible's view is not that this world is evil and needs to be jettisoned. There's so much good in the world. Uh, there's so much to be enjoyed, so much to be celebrated. That's because God made the world good. But nor is the Bible's view that the world is all okay and that the best thing in the world would just be to come back again and again and again and again. Because not only is there good in the world, there's also evil. There's also suffering and misery and pain and hurt, great abuses of power, great greed, great hardship. Now, the Bible's view is not that the world is good or perfect as it is. The Bible's view is that the world was created good by God, but we've broken it. And it's beyond our power to piece it back together. And so we need God to fix it. We need God to make it new. And we need God to fix us and to make us new. And that's what God promises in Jesus. God promises to put us and our world back together. And he's shown that he can do it in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. The Bible's hope is not the elimination of this world, but this world and us in it fixed. Third, the hope of the Bible is not the destruction of our personality and identity, 
but a transformation of what we are into something better. It's we who are raised, not someone else, not a blank slate. We will be changed, not changed into something else, not changed into a gazelle. No, we, we, not us devoid of our personality, but us changed to be immortal, changed to be like Jesus. Paul likens our transformation to that of a seed and a plant. Uh, The seed and the plant are the same thing but in different forms you don't plant a pumpkin and get a rose Uh, at least I never have Uh, you don't plant a rose and get a cat you plant a rose and get a rose and Paul's saying the same thing we die uh, and and God when God raises us we come back not as a different thing uh, but as the same thing albeit albeit changed in some significant way we come back immortal imperishable our transformation is from perishable to imperishable from mortal to immortal from sinful to pure from corrupt to holy it's not the end of who we are but the reformation and renewal of who we are and again that's anchored in the person of Jesus Jesus came as a human being the son of God came as one of us into our world he died as one of us he rose again as one of us he rose again with a physical body that people recognized ah oh, it's Jesus he rose not as a different person but as the same person he rose not as a blank slate but with all the history all that shared history that he'd already experienced with his disciples and with with his followers. His new body was immortal, imperishable and glorious and powerful, but he was still Jesus, still who he was. The Bible's hope is that you stay you, the you that God made. And if you're linked up with Jesus, then you'll be raised with him to be like him, immortal, imperishable, but also right and good. Finally, the hope that the Bible holds out uh, for what happens after this life depends not on what we do but on who we know so in hinduism and buddhism what kind of life we return with depends on what kind of life we live if we live a bad life we uh, we are you know fated to live a bad life again and after many 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 lives uh, hopefully we can make progress so that we can escape this physical world but that's not the bible's hope The Bible's hope is not in what we do, but in what Jesus has done for us in our place, apart from us, and which he shares with us as a gift. So Paul says in verse 57, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory. He gives it to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory over death comes not through our own power and effort, but as a gift from Jesus Christ. Paul explains how that works a little earlier when he compares Jesus and Adam. Uh, He says Adam was the first human being. Paul calls him a man of dust. Adam plunged our world into chaos by rejecting God, by rebelling against God. And ever since, we've all followed Adam in that behaviour. We've all rejected God. We've all turned against God. We ignore him. We do our own thing. And the consequence of that is that we die. We're people of dust. We're born, we live for 70 years, maybe 100 if we're really lucky, and then we die and our bodies return to dust. 
But Paul says, just as Adam was the first man of humanity, and we all share in that, Jesus is the first of a new humanity, a humanity which is free from death, free from suffering, free from evil. And Jesus is, Paul says, a life-giving spirit. That is, Jesus has the power to give life to others and to let them share in his eternal life. So if we link up with Jesus, if we're with him, uh, if our arms are around him and his arms are around us, then the hope is that we will share in that new humanity which he has established in himself. He's put that old rubbish humanity to death and brought to life something really remarkable. He is a man who having died can die no more and having been raised from the dead is no longer subject to death. And when we know and love Jesus, we share in that and share in that with him. Uh, what hope is there in reincarnation for those who've messed up their lives, right? What hope is there in reincarnation for those who languish in prisons or at the bottom of society? What hope is there in reincarnation except hundreds and thousands of lives of painful uh, suffering and maybe at the end of all of that you might make it? <laughs> and make it to what? But the Bible says you can be the worst sinner in the world, you can have wrecked everything in your own life and in the lives of others, and if you take the hand that Jesus stretches out to you, he'll be with you now. And when you breathe your last, he'll be with you then. And he'll lift you up and take you to be with him, and when he returns to put this world right, he'll raise you up immortal and imperishable and glorious and new. You see, it's not based on what we do, but on who we know. We need to know Jesus. And as he stretches out his hand to us, we need to take him by the hand and say, I'm with you, Jesus. But for all that's wrong uh, about reincarnation, I think there's one thing that's fundamentally right. And that is the idea that there's something more. The idea that death is not the end. I suspect that at heart the reason that uh, people are drawn to reincarnation is their immense dissatisfaction with the emptiness of the explanation of the world that we get from science, from scientific rationalism. That is, there's nothing to life beyond this. That is, people reject the idea that this world is all that there is and all that we see. People want something more. People feel that there is something more. They know that there's something more. And according to the Bible, that's because God has written eternity on our hearts. That is, woven deeply into us, into the fabric of who we are, is the sense that we were made for more than this life. We weren't made to die. We were made for something more. C.S. Lewis, uh, Lewis likens it to being hungry. Hunger, he says, doesn't tell us that we'll ever be fed. Right? Some of us might go without food. <laughs> but it does tell us that we are creatures who depend on food to live. And it does tell us that we live in a world where food exists. And in the same way, our hunger for a better world and another life suggests that there's something that we're missing that we need to live. 
and it tells us that that thing exists. Lewis goes on to say that all our memories of good times or better times, all the music and the artwork that we enjoy and which gives us hope, all the books which stir our hearts for something better, those are just flashes of what it is that we really desire. He writes this, They are not the thing itself. They're only the scent of a flower we have not yet found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Our desire for something more doesn't tell us what the right answer is, but it does tell us that we're right to want something more. The longing for reincarnation, the longing for reincarnation to be true is based on a genuine desire. But I'm not convinced that it's the right answer or or even a good answer. Is the country that we're longing for this world as it is over and over and over again? Or is it another world? A world like this one but fixed. A world put right through Jesus and shared with everyone who takes him by the hand and says, I'm with you, Jesus. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we just want to acknowledge uh, that deep desire and deep truth wedded into us that we were made for more than this life. We sense deeply within us that death oughtn't to be the end that pain and suffering oughtn't to be part of the fabric of our existence. That sorrow isn't right. That sadness isn't right. Disappointment isn't right. We have this deep sense, Lord, that we were made for more. That there's a, there's a song that we half know but can't quite finish. A land that we've heard of but never visited. Lord, you've written those realities deep into our hearts to set us searching for the truth. And Lord, we ask that you'd help us to find the truth in Jesus Christ. The one man in history who's died and come back. Come back to tell us about what happens after this life. The man who died so that we might not die, but live with you for eternity. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to put our trust in him and in a better hope. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.